Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, which happens to be the most affordable online addiction counseling option available. To learn more about the program, browse free resources, or to schedule a free consultation with a trained addiction coach, visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com. Again, that's lifeprocessprogram.com. Questions of family often appear in relation to addiction and drug issues. As with all questions in these areas, discussion is misled by disease beliefs, which leave people muddled and mystified about how to proceed constructively. Nonetheless, basic human values often assert themselves, allowing people, especially young people, to free themselves and display bravery. Examples in the news are the women in Russian protest group Pussy Riot, Masha Gessen, the Russian-American radical journalist whose son is lost in Vicodin, the four granddaughters of Joe Biden who allowed the president to free America from Trump, and the often absent addicted father Hunter who almost cost his father the presidency. Today I spoke with the creator of the Life Process Program, Dr. Stanton Peel, about these current events and how they tie into our work, the Life Process Program. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, today we're going to deal with um, a topic that's a little off topic from what we often deal with. We, I might call it how to deal with addiction in the best families, uh, how to deal with addiction in privileged families. Do you remember, Zach, you and I worked on a project where there was a child from a privileged family that went off the rails. Do you remember that project we did together? So you're talking about Beautiful Boy. Exactly right. Yes, yes. I think the way that we parsed it was the father, uh, what is his name? David. David Chef. He had the, you know, the right sentiment, the concern of a parent, but his whole mindset was around, you know, which drugs he was doing and how bad those were and what they did to his brain. And he kind of neglected it, at least in his write-up about his experience, to ask his son about some basic life questions. I think that's a good tie-in on it. Your read was... uh... We talk in our book about people's narratives on drugs, Mm. and when people are preoccupied by drugs and their addictive properties, they're often missing the byplay of their lives. Right. And we'll get back to this topic. I think a big question is, you know, it's one you deal with. How do you deal with people who are, your job's not to say to them, oh, you're a lousy parent. No wonder your kid got screwed up. On the other hand, you're not going to sit there and let them say, oh, well, he got addicted because the drug's addictive. That mm-hmm. That's not going to help anybody. I mean, I guess the one other aspect of it, it's the bad joke that I make about it. Um, I go, well, it's too bad the son, Nick Schiff, died from drugs. And then I go, oh, he didn't die, did he? Oh, no, he lives in an apartment. He's in his 30s now in San Francisco with his girlfriend and a dog. And he writes bestsellers about addiction and he lectures about addiction. And so the bad joke there is privileged people are far less likely to become addicted. We talk about that all the time, but it happens. But they have so many more keys to overcoming addiction. And so the bad joke I make, oh, I don't know why those people in West Virginia and Appalachia and inner city Boston, uh, Baltimore, why don't they just write a bestseller and yeah. overcome their addiction that way? So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to turn now to a remarkable, I'm going to talk a lot about bravery today, I think. Um, and one person I'm going to talk about, the first family, is a woman named Masha Gessen. Uh, her, her Wikipedia entry says she's non-binary, transsexual, and she uses uh, the pronouns they and them, right. which is a little tricky for me to do. I'll try to maybe refer to Gessen rather than pronouns. Right. Just and why I know about Masha Gessen is she's been for two, she's had two areas that I'm very familiar with. She was born in Russia, but she came to the United States with her parents, I think as an adolescent, went to college here, mm-hmm. and then returned to Russia as a journalist. So she knows she's very bicultural. And she's been... Uh, Gessen has been one of the people who's most warned us against Donald Trump as an incipient totalitarian who follows the model. He admires uh, Putin so much, Vladimir Putin. And in fact, he's followed his model. 
and she's written and described that that paradigm how you get to be a totalitarian and, and Gesson's one of the people who was convinced that if Trump won a second term we'd be turning into an oligarchy mm-hmm. like Russia the way I really know about Masha Gesson do you know what Pussy Riot is? Yeah, Mac? yeah, that female punk band. That's a little bit misleading that they were a rock band. I actually went to see them um, in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center, but they're not a band. What They were provocateurs. Right, right. There were four or five women or six women, a shifting cast, and they would go somewhere, like a Greek Orthodox church. I think that's what finally did them in. And they'd throw off their overcoats and they'd start playing bands guitars and screaming yeah and it wasn't really music performance art maybe you'd call it yeah but they were disrupt they were saying because at one point communism was atheist but now like most power structures the church and the government were totally lockstep Mm -hmm. um so i went to see them in an oldies concert dusty springfield sang i love her and I don't know what the rest of the audience, the 50,000 people in Barclay Center were thinking, but these two women came on and started talking about freedom and um, being able to express yourself in totalitarianism. I loved the combination, but it was unusual. And are you aware, I don't want to get too political, but something's happening in Russia today. Do you know what that is? Yeah, they're protesting the maltreatment of that journalist. Lexi Novotny was the leader of the opposition to Vladimir Putin. And that's a high-risk job. Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, the last, I think, one of the last uh, webinars we did, one of the last podcasts we did, which is on my YouTube channel, I think I modestly call myself the bravest addiction expert <laughs> in North America. Because I'm, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only one who's willing to criticize Gabor Mate. So I'm pretty brave. But in Russia, there's several levels of being braver than that. Yeah. And those levels involve getting murdered or going to prison. Yeah, for sure. Well, they're now, they're demonstrating on the street, which Mm -hmm. hasn't happened since 2017. Right. Because Alexei Novotny, who Putin had poisoned and almost died. Right. And he went out of the country for treatment. And now this is beyond my ability to be brave. He's returned. And so they put him in prison. And it's caused thousands of people have been arrested. So one human being can cause, you know, it's tough to protest in Russia. And one human being can make a difference. So Pussy Riot, where these women, they demonstrated. And I, I imagine Putin's logic is, well, should I kill them? And then he's thinking, well, they're attractive young women. It might attract too much attention. So let's put him in prison. And then the question is, well, how long will we keep him in prison? And, you know, that's an open-ended equation. Mm. And so um, Masha Gessen wrote a great book. I, I read it twice about these women. The two key women were imprisoned. And when you're imprisoned in Russia, you know, it's really far away. One of them was married and had children. So we'll be talking about ACEs adverse childhood events, she was creating one for her children by going to prison. She had a dedicated husband who would bring her things. You know, in a Russian prison, in case you ever get sentenced, Zach, um, you know, you'll have to, like, buy, have somebody has to give you money to buy soap so you can get a shower once a week. It's, it's not a country club. And the other woman was single, so she faced the opposite issue of being totally isolated. And Masha Gessen... It took bravery to write a book about them, to take whatever means of transportation to get out there. She would travel with one of their husbands, the one who was married, and she wrote about them. So it was such a remarkable book to read about those women's bravery and to contemplate Masha Gessen. Uh, The movie that she made about, it's called Pussy Riot, the movement. What is it about those individual women's actions that actually created a whole political movement. So she's a world-class political intellectual, a brave woman. And I'm not totally sure of her family situation, but I believe she has three children. I think two of them are biological daughters. At least one is. 
And she adopted a son in Russia who had developmental issues. She recently wrote an article last this past week about opioid crisis in America, which is not her bag. I don't expect her to come across. I mean, she writes about capitalism. And the title is The Sackler Family and Mine. The descendants of the Purdue Pharma founders debated over WhatsApp. Meanwhile, bottles of painkillers accumulated in my medicine cabinet. That's the title of the piece. Strange what do you title. make of that title? What does it make you think of when you hear that title? You know, funny enough, I'm thinking that she has bottles full of painkillers that despite, you know, they're supposed to be so addictive, uh, she's got a ton left over. So apparently she stopped taking them at some point. So you're thinking it. about her, maybe the way, the, what I thought about it was, because she's such a, they is such a vibrant intellectual that she, that guessing thinks like us about addiction. That's how mm-hmm. I read it. That, right, saying, right. That's exactly what I. That's exactly what I mean. So okay, they give me painkillers. I don't know what her medical situation is, but she had two medical, oper- two severe intera- uh, interventions, and she had a bunch of painkillers, and she never took them at all. <laughs> She's not a painkiller. Gesson's not a painkiller person, and so we, you and I, often talk. Well, you know, painkillers are supposed to be addictive, but most people don't aren't enticed by painkillers and even if they are they stop using them so i thought she was saying what you know thinking like us but she's not uh guessing is a political radical she's not an addiction radical. she she never thought about addiction and here's the last paragraph in her treaties she talks about how bad the sackler family is how they talk to each well it's a funny article They talk to each other about how they're being railroaded, how it's not the painkillers that are causing the problem. And she talks about, because it was all on WhatsApp and it was all revealed in court. And then she switches, I guess, and switches quickly to her her adopted son. And this is the last paragraph in the article. What I wouldn't give to feel that kind of certainty, the certainty that the Sacklers expressed about their own family and how they weren't to blame. And then Gesson says, I don't know if my son is currently using drugs. He, he had a hospitalization event and other things. But he has told me that not an hour of his life passes when he doesn't think about opioids. It was the f- one thing he found that made him feel comfortable in the world. He said, so you and I, when we hear a sentence like that, that's what people become. If if an experience makes you feel comfortable in the world and you otherwise don't feel comfortable in the world, that's a danger. So then Gesson starts self-recriminating. Not a day of mine passes without wondering what I might have done differently. What if I'd known more about developmental trauma when I adopted him? What if I pressured him less? I imagine Gesson being, you know, so academic. He was in college when he had these drug experiences based on stealing his mother's drugs. What if I'd been home more? Because, you know, Gesson's going around giving lectures and everything like that. What if I hadn't made a move around, changed schools? learn a new language and culture as a teenager, which is what she did. But she, uh, I guess, and adopted him in Russia and brought him to the U.S. What if I discouraged him from going to a competitive college? I assume she emphasized achievement, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guessing so brilliant, she wanted her son to do well. What if I hadn't kept those bottles of medicine? And that last one is the... That's the end of the that's the end of the whole review. When Gesson writes about Putin and brave political people, she's completely self-assured. Here, Gesson's totally at sea, and her last sentence undercuts the entire purpose, sort of, of the review. I mean, what people mm-hmm. say about the Sacklers is they produced a lot of opioids and then people took them. And what the Sacklers say is, you know. We made painkillers. People, you know, pharmacies purchased them. 
what determines whether people become addicted to painkillers isn't that. And in a way, Gessen is dealing with the same problem. I made all of those painkillers available. They were mm -hmm. in my medicine closet. Am I to blame for my son's addiction? Of course, she has the extra question, which gets back to David Schiff. Well, Gessen was raising this child, too, so she's doubly involved. What You said you had some reactions when I first sent this to you. What? How do you bounce off of these? I had three reactions to it. You know, I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who she's actually talking to and wants to know those questions. First of all, I, I don't deal much with those questions in past tense. Any of those questions, if she could answer them, if I turned that back and said, well, let's let's do the counterfactual, what if, all those things, that brings you to the present moment. Okay, that maybe generates some solutions. Two. So let me let's stop. Let me go on that. Okay. In other words, she doesn't know whether her son's doing it now. So. Right. You can worry about all those questions in the past. Am I driving him to go to too high an academic college for his abilities? Right. I, which, you know, which you and I have no idea about. Right. And and you would say, well, are you driving him too hard now? I mean, is he in the wrong academic environment? That's what you would say. Exactly. And, you know, we would never in our, in the life process program, we would never be so leading with questions. But it almost sounds like she's asking the kinds of questions or, you know, preemptive kind of question that we might ask her to think about. But now, the surfacing those answers now to generate solutions in the here and now. Yeah, what can you do now, not what did you do wrong? So the fact that she's talking that way means that she's she's ready to accept that he's doomed, you know, like he's died or something. Um, but, you know, he's alive. She just... And she also says, I don't know, he's taking drugs now. Right. And, you know, that would be good to know about. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I know what we would emphasize and what you would do with a parent is to say, well, you can't either be over alarmed or negative or he's not going to tell you. Right. That is what I would want to know. The, the thing that I see there that you can kind of get some value from is she said that, you know, she wished she had that kind of certainty. He said that he always thinks about opioids. And that's the one thing that made him feel comfortable in the world. So I might say, well, at least there's something, you know, you know, the people who say people say opioids or drugs kill you, but drugs maybe save my life. Like uh, Mikey, who I interviewed, you know, I would want to ask Mikey in those situations or I would want to ask uh, Gessen's son, what is it that you find elating or pleasurable about opioids that make you feel like, OK, maybe life is worth living and you could pull from there rather than. You know. Exactly. And you might you might say you try to extract what about the experience makes it feel OK. I right. mean, it's, you might guess that he feels driven to do things that he's not capable of doing. And you might right. say it's the only time I relax. And that could lead back to a discussion. Exactly. Possibly Gefson is expecting more academically from him. We, I don't know. Yeah. The, no matter the answer he gives, there's something there of substance because. You know, it's just a line of thing. He might be over reliant on or have tunnel vision on an opioid experience, but there are probably things he could generate that he's not thinking about, and there are probably ways that uh, guessing could help him that she's not thinking about. So those are things I would think clinically. And then that you said the last sentence, that question mark. What if I hadn't kept those bottles? Uh, that caps it off, like you say. Not only is she deciding he's doomed, but he's doomed because. Now he's he's too far gone. He's he's already taken these drugs that I know are capable of capturing. Right. She soul. doesn't have anything. The bottles are empty now. Those right. she doesn't have any bottles now. Right. That's a really good point. In other words, okay, he relied on those drugs when you had them. You don't have them, and you're not planning on getting any more. Oh so, yeah, that, that wasn't um, even my point. Yeah, but that's a good. That is a good point. But I was more saying that she put the nail in the coffin there. She's like, well, he's too far gone. This is an assumption that she's kind of making implied in those questions. And then basically the question is a way of saying, uh, and the drugs did this to him. And they were my right. drugs. Or she's saying he's addicted. We're doomed. I right. mean, which gets right. back to our comment. We talk, we talk about narratives and outgrowing addiction. I mean, if you think about addiction as a state of being, or relying on drugs as a state of being, 
well, let's change that state of being. So maybe it's unfortunate you had so many drugs around, although, you know, I saved all my painkillers when I had three kids growing up and I didn't expect them to take them. And I'm not aware that they ever did. Or if they did, who knows what kids are up to? You know, none of them ever almost died or were hospitalized Mm -hmm. from, from taking opioids. So what we would say is, well, okay, what, as you said, well, let's, we're moving forward now. What is it that makes him want to take opioids now? I mean, you might ask, where does he get them? Uh, But how do we replace those experiences? But what's amazing, we could title this whole thing, what, what, what happens when good people become addicted? We talked about being deprived, disadvantaged, and having adverse childhood events predisposes you to addiction, but people in privileged positions will occasionally be, have become addicted or have children who become addicted, but their chances of recovery, to use that term, are infinitely greater than somebody who's enmeshed in the middle mm-hmm. of downtown Baltimore or impoverished West Virginia who has no skills. I mean, the joke I made about Nick Sheff, he had a good education. So, okay, he was taking he was taking amphetamines, he was taking meth, but he could write. And he could write about that experience. And so somewhere along the way, he segued into writing about having that right. experience as opposed to going around taking a ton of meth. I'm glad you said the, the, best, this- the most important word you said was segued because in that oh, – sorry, in the second book that he wrote, he was – you know, did a an admission that he was on drugs and sort of out of control while he was writing the book and into the end of the book. So it really was an, an admitted segue while – in chaotic drug problematic drug use he was still writing them until he finally got to a space that he was okay and i know one of the ways to work with children is to have them write about their experiences even as those experiences may be negative because that's a way of developing it's a way of getting control of the experiences emotionally Mm. and it's a way of developing a you know saleable skill i mean if you can write well at some point you say you know, you're a good writer. What you're writing here is valuable. It other people want to read about it, and uh, it's insightful. And right. you sort of enable professional person here. And you know, you're writing about your experience. You know, I wish it wasn't drug experience, but say la vie. You know, that's your experience, and you're writing about it to try and understand it and to help other people. How do you, we're we're about transforming. We don't think of addiction as a solid state. We don't think of addiction as being created by the drugs in our cabinet. Mm -hmm. We think about addiction as a state where people are trying to get satisfaction that they can't get otherwise, which Gaston's son says, this is the only time I feel okay. And the question we're asking is, well, what about it makes you feel okay? And what other ways can we get to that feeling? Because this this way of getting that feeling, you know, is less than optimal. Although you can say, you know, harm reduction is saying, well, okay, I understand this makes you feel okay. I'm, I'm not going to say, oh, it doesn't. But even that's not a disease. That's a purposeful way of a dealing with experience. Right. So, um, you asked me a question when we talked about uh, Gabor Monte and trauma theory, and I'm going to throw that question back at you. You said to me, why do people love to talk about and explain their difficulties in terms of trauma? Let me throw that question back to you. When you encounter a family and the family starts throwing around labels for their child, like oppositional disorder or ADHD or bipolar why do they do that? Well, a couple reasons. A, they they don't mind those stories because it it gives a name to the kind of problem. You know, you just think you're acting like haphazardly before, just all over the place for no good reason, and now all of a sudden there is a name and a reason, and 
something to identify with, but they do it because they've been told it. That's why they really recite it back to me. And then you have to transition them to something more useful. Yeah, but this, that's how I know it's sort of ideological more than what they believe. Even if they've been sold it and used the term so much, I always reframe this as a little bit sneaky, but it's, you know, in good faith. I'll say something like, all right, good to know, but I'll still just treat them like I would treat anybody else. Right. That's you comfort. mentioned late when we talked about, I think that came up in the Gabor discussion. Yeah, yeah. You People like to have an explanation for why their kid is doing something wrong, but they also want to feel that their child's normal. Right. That's a great relief. And you sort of say, well, listen, both in your manner and in what you describe you're doing, you say, let's just deal with your son or daughter as a normal person. Exactly. Well, let's move on a little bit. Um, we're talking about bravery, Masha Gessen and those, and the Pussy Riot women. They got guts. And Novotny, you know, who's in prison right now. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Time- I rem- I'm sorry. Sorry that I cut you off. Um, Go on. I-, I remember when they went to prison another time. I mean, it was years ago. But you're saying yeah. they've gone to prison again, or they've they're, no, they're gone. They're out okay. of the country. All right, Navatny's right. in prison. Navatny's right, the right. leader of the opposition. Right, right. So here, there's one brave man in this story, and uh, uh, the two leaders of Pussy Riot and Mashigessen are the women brave. But I guess the other thing I keep coming back to is Mashigessen is a person who doesn't come across as uncertain right to have the guts to cut up putin while you're in russia mashigazin isn't cowering in the corner but in dealing with her son and addiction and drugs she's like a wreck Hmm. um she doesn't know where to start and where to end and where to begin and where the middle is Basha Gessen knows how to deal in a way up to a point with Putin. You know, you want to stay out of his prisons, but she doesn't have the tools and the mechanics to deal with a son who takes drugs. And you and I try to lay out how we would approach it. And I mean, one thing you and I are somewhat familiar with that experience it's when that happens we don't throw up our hands and go eek yeah i mean what we read nick chef's book and you know now he lives in san francisco with his girlfriend and has a dog and writes bestsellers so let me talk about let me switch to another family and it's almost the opposite situation they're sort of america's most admired family right now and i admire them you may be aware Joe Biden is president of the United States right now. And when he was running, he was running against <laughs> people who I preferred, Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren, even Marianne Williamson, who, you know, you're aware my daughter Anna interviewed Marianne Williamson for the Washington Post. And her view of addictions like ours, you know, drug addiction isn't what the addiction epidemics about and i would have i don't i would never vote for president i'm not going to vote for somebody who's never had a public office Mm -hmm. because we did that recently i didn't but it didn't work out right but elizabeth warren and Pete Buttigieg are, you know very smart people and joe biden wasn't the smartest boy in the class but it turns out in this election what was most important is that he's a decent human being. And who knew that that would turn out to be the most, who knew that would be the primary attribute for voting for somebody? You know, the guy's a decent human being. He cares about other people. Let's vote for him. Um, And so based on that, do you know who Jenna Bush is? George W. Bush had two daughters, twin daughters, non-identical twins when he was in the White House. And their names are Jenna Bush and Barbara Bush, sort of Barbara Bush Jr., named after his mother. She does, uh, what's it called, Today 
the Monday morning show. Yeah, yeah. yeah Jan- Janet Bush does. And um, I, while I'm at it, I'll just throw something out here. Both of them were apprehended more than once for underage drinking. And of course, as we all know, they both turned into street alcoholics. <laughs> That's a bad joke. You know, they're privileged, bright women from intact families who were loved, who went to good schools, and now they're big deals. Jenna Bush is big on the Today Show, and Barbara Bush, she runs some big nonprofit. That's what they were made to feel they should do, and that's what they did, despite having begun drinking under the age of 21. So Jenna Bush feels that she's got some insight into talking to young girls who entered the White House. And so she interviewed the four Biden granddaughters and Ashley, who was Joe Biden's daughter. Joe Biden had three children survive to adulthood. Uh, His young infant daughter was killed many years ago. Bo Biden was an adult, big political figure who died of a brain tumor of brain cancer. <clears throat> um, Ashley is his daughter. She's the quiet one. She doesn't hurt from much. And there's another child who will be a part of this discussion who I'll t- mention later. So the four granddaughters are there. Three of them are sisters. And one is their cousin, Bo's daughter. And it was just a marvel to see the four of them together. They had different personalities. They had different looks. One was sort of fashionable at the uh, inauguration. She wore like some kind of a pink pants suit and everybody was talking about it on the internet. And, you know, one of the girls, they're all teenagers, is more of an athlete. She kind of has more of a sweatshirty look. And, you know, they're all different. But all of them were completely positive. All of them participated in the conversation actively, all four, the three sisters and their cousin. And them girls got guts yeah, because they said at one point their grandfather, they talked a lot about their grandparents, Joe and Joe Biden, was thinking about not running because of how it would disrupt their lives. And these four teenagers got together and decided that it was important for the United States of America that their grandfather run for president and that they would be willing to accept the burden that that would place on them. Mm. I, I don't know that I would have been able to do that myself. I don't, I don't know either. Cause you know, uh, a couple of them play sports. So, you know, who wants a secret service guy around, you know, your soccer game every day, you know, and <laughs> whatever you're going to do, who wants that? And, And who knows, you know, what crazy person might do. I mean, that's a real risk. So they voted for that and they told their grandfather that and he ran for president and God bless them. They saved our country. Yeah. So during the course of this story, there's another character who will now emerge, you know, um, there's a lot of things I'm not allowed to talk about somehow. Uh, one of them is Gabor Monte, for example, and another is Nora Volko. Nobody wants to talk about them because they're all powerful. But those three girls' fathers, somebody, I keep proposing articles about him to uh, Will, and he doesn't want to touch it. And that, that person is Hunter Biden. And Hunter Biden is radioactive for a million reasons. You may not remember the first... Um, the first time that ex-president Trump was tried was for trying to bribe or threaten the president of Ukraine to get information on Hunter Biden. Right. That's what the first, that was the first time that they tried to throw Trump out. So there's a big political thing, and liberals don't want to talk about what the hell Hunter Biden was doing. And, you know, I'm a progressive. I'm good politically, but, you know, it is going to be tricky. Uh, 
Hunter Biden's father, Joe Biden, was vice president of the United States. And Hunter Biden was getting $300,000 a year to consult with an energy company in Ukraine. That is tricky. Do you know what I mean? And he doesn't know anything about energy. And Hunter (laughs) Biden needed a lot of money. And why Hunter Biden needed a lot of money? The Biden family, you know, I believe they're a perfect family. Um, Joe Biden and Jill Biden are a wonderful couple. Jill Biden's still teaching at a community. Dr. Biden is still teaching at a community college while she's the wife of the president. Yeah. God bless her. She really believes she has a role in life and she wants to carry it on. And she cares about the kids. Yeah. She wants them to do well. And um, they have one daughter, Ashley, the fifth per- woman on that stage that Jenna Bush is interviewing. Is there? She's kind of low-key. She's quiet. But she's dignified. And, and the kids all love their... One of the kids is really close to Jill Biden, the grandmother. And all the other kids know that. One of the kids says, oh, Maisie or whatever, whichever of the girls is. And uh, grandma... They really get each other. It's touching the amount of intergenerational communication. But at one point, one or two of the girls said, oh, Joe Biden comes to more of our games than our father. Mm. Their father's Hunter Biden. And, and they made a joke. One, one said when Joe Biden showed up, Pop, Grandpa, didn't I just see you on television? In other words, he's running for president. He's got a lot on his mind. But he's showing up at their whatever, soccer or hockey games. Right. And then she said, this is the only time I believe Hunter's name came up. Oh, he would be, Pop, Pop would, Pop, Grandpa would be at my games more than my, than my father. Now, Hunter Biden was actually at the inauguration. I don't know if you noticed him. And he was there with the child. Yeah. That child was born last year. So let's we're going to go backwards in Hunter Biden's um, romantic history. He married a woman last year that he knew for two weeks and they had a baby last year. And so he's during the inauguration, he's carrying the baby around. Okay, that happens in life. And if you're his teenage daughters, that's that's their brother. But let's just say his focus was on that little baby boy. But unbeknownst to just about everybody, that's not the only baby child that Hunter Biden has. Um, after Bo died, Hunter moved in with Bo's widow. That's sort of not exactly ideal family material. Right. It's kind of almost kinky. And he lived with her, I think, roughly from 2016 to 2019, something like that. So those four cousins who get along so well, their three daughters were going over to their aunt's house to see their father, who's living with their cousin. You know, that takes some mental acuity. How do you deal with that? And somewhere along the line, Hunter went off the tracks. He got arrested. He went to rehab several times. He was caught with crack. And somewhere in that journey, he had a baby with another woman, not his sister-in-law, not his current wife. So they now have two new siblings and their father lives with another woman after having lived with their aunt. And so it's sort of like in that perfect family, uh, Hunter Biden is the one, you know, generally you're considered to have an acute ACE score, um, adverse childhood events, if you have three or more. Hunter Biden all by himself was three adverse childhood events. He and his wife were divorced, the mother of the three girls and the mother of the cousin. He was in rehab and, you know, addicted to drugs or whatever, with uh, negatively impacted his whole life with drugs and alcohol. And he was, he was arrested and jailed briefly. So those are three significant adverse childhood events. So I'm going to power to the end of this complex family story and say two, I don't know, almost divergent things. One is sort of what I said about um, 
what we began with Nick and David Chef. I, I, who knows what turmoil those three girls are going through, but they look extremely well adjusted. They got along all with each other, despite the Michigas going on with their parents. Um, they're all in school. They're all, they were all positive in their outlooks. They were all supportive of their grandfather taking control back from the madman who was running the country. They look to be extremely strong, well-adjusted people. And so, uh, once again, you and I, uh, based on our discussion of Gawar Monte and trauma theory, I think we might say something like, well, traumatic events are bad, but if you're involved, if you're encased, if you're embedded in a strong family and social situation, that's more important than the number of adverse childhood events mm-hmm. you have. If you have a strong family structure, they're all dedicated to the grandparents who are dedicated to them. Their aunt was there. I don't think Ashley has any children. She's another strong parental figure. And they do have a mother. Um, um, Both mothers, the the mothers are still there. And, you know, I think they're strong and positive women, too. And obviously, these are people with a lot of resources. I, I don't know what's, you know, they're going to get a good education. And, you know, but the um, people will both agree people change over time. So there's no saying that Hunter is stuck in the abyss forever. I mean, you might just come around and be a decent father. Well, and I think to Joe Biden's credit, I think that's how Joe Biden approaches it. Yeah. I don't think I, Joe Biden isn't rejecting Hunter Biden and, you know, he's causing some problems um that as i said it was sort of the basis of the whole impeachment thing i mean one third of uh trump's campaign against joe biden was hunter biden but you know joe biden i don't know can a father love too much i i I just he would never say to hunter you know you've caused me some problems son i don't think he would ever do that yeah that's not his approach to parenting or grandparenting perhaps that he might have adjusted that a little with Hunter, but who knows? So, um, yeah. Well, Hunter is, he was at the inauguration. You might right. say it's a positive. He's there with his new wife. They've been married a couple of years now. He has a new bouncing boy. He seems to love carrying him around. Life begins today. He could have a positive family life with them. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe he does have positive interactions with his daughters. I'm sure Joe and Jill certainly want that to be the case, and right. I, they want to make that happen. But you're saying even worse case, say that doesn't happen. They have a pretty well-adjusted family, and even if some immediate family members aren't around for those kids or something bad has happened to them, I mean, they just have they have the village that they say it takes to raise a child. Yes. I mean, one of the granddaughters was, she was complaining but laughing. She said, Pop called me at 1130 at night. I said, Pop, you got to be in bed. You're campaigning tomorrow. Why are you up so late? <laughs> and he said, well, I was worried you hadn't gotten home yet. So, you know, he could be a little annoying, you know, tracking his teenage daughters, you know, at 1130 at night. But <laughs> she knows she's cared for yeah, and loved and has a secure family structure. And her grandfather's going to come to her soccer games and root for her, you know, if even if Hunter's not 100% on target on all of that. So here's my last question for you. I began by saying um, families differ, and the Biden family differs from average families in their solidity, their values, how supportive they are. And you can't compare the dysfunction that occurred in that house, in that family, to somebody in West Virginia where people are going to prison Mm -hmm. and where generations have been addicted perhaps to painkillers and where nobody, people are on government support and they they're working in mines, which make them sick and they can't get a job. That's a different universe. And, you know, returning to Carl Hart, he would say, well, drugs are not the problem. I would say ACEs are not the problem. Adverse child events are not the problem. A divorce that happens in a family that's completely well-disciplined and has a strong foundation is just different. But here's my question for you, Zach. I don't know. 
it's a tricky one. And it's in a, in a way, it's reassuring to families who've had trauma. Would you say that if you examined any family, all families have some kind of skeleton in the closet or some kind of Achilles heel? All of them have something that could be claimed to be a trauma or a problem. Nobody, no family's completely scot-free. That even the Biden family, which is idealized for America, well, they've they've had significant, well, leaving aside the unavoidable ones, the deaths and the accidents and the brain tumors, those are just whatever they are, acts of nature, acts of God. But even in terms of the behavior of the family, they've had a major negative event. Do you feel that's, that same can be said on virtually any family? Everyone. And I'll use the word trauma loosely, but even we talked about guessing and I was thinking about what she was saying. And you said she's a pretty strong, she's not exactly a pushover, but she's really shaky about what she wants to do with her child or, or how to deal with addiction. I think that the idea, you know, the thing that a lot of parents share that they will second guess their own best instincts in favor of the stories that they've heard, which you kind of have to do mental gymnastics to understand what the stories mean. That should be a traumatic event, if anything. Um, just, you know. It's almost like the treatment or the reaction. Right. Gesson's reaction to her son is kind of an additional trauma in addition to the him. I mean, he ended up hospitalized for mm-hmm. I don't know what combination of things he was doing. But then her reaction sort of a trauma on top of that. Gesson seems permanent. I never would say permanently. She ha- she has a long term trauma around her being a mother now. Mm. So yeah, I mean, so everyone you, has something. Everyone has something. So I remember, um, and who knows if this will ever happen to you? You're the last person in the, uh, in the world it'll happen to, I'm sure. But sometimes teenagers become resentful and they accuse their parents of X or Y. And, you know, then you're sitting there thinking, huh, is that so bad? That's right. uh, And, you know, my ex-wife used to say to our children, you know, you're complaining about this and that. You you don't know what's going on out there. (laughs) And there's this ritual they had at Morristown High School. Maybe they have it at every high school in America, every privileged high school in America, where they gather up all the kids for a day, they line them up early in the morning, they come in their pajamas, and they sort of let their hair down and tell their life stories. And Anna's worst trauma story was, I I knew this, Dana was supposed to be watching the dog, and um, Bruno, and he, he let Bruno out of his sight. Bruno went to the rabbit's cage, where Anna's there was uh, some Disney film and Anna a little rat Anna's 10 years younger than Dana and the dog shook the cage loose and killed the rabbit mm-hmm. and me and Dana went and got another rabbit but it didn't fool Anna <laughs> and so by high school when she went to this thing people talked about their life events and, you know, I asked Anna what she talked about. And she talked about, well, I talked about the rabbit, you know. I said, okay. And what did other people talk about? And she said, oh, well, one kid's brother committed suicide. Yeah. And a couple of kids were on antidepressants. And my, I tend not to react this way because I do have a PhD in psychology. But um, my wife said... I told you. I mean, it's terrible your rabbit died. I still feel guilty about it. But, you know, let's put things in perspective. You're kind of saying you could have a room full of people and they could be the well, most well-adjusted people in the world or they could be yeah, underprivileged. But every single one of them, if you ask, what's the worst thing that's happened in your life? Well, I have some story to tell. Better-adjusted people might have something that's not quite as stark. But even if they do, they're better-adjusted. I talked to a person earlier today who I was asking him about. I mean, he is sort of a trauma story, although he's sort of he's he would he would say aces aren't the problem as well. 
And so I tried to get him to elaborate on that. And I, he's had a family member who committed suicide and that made the relationship between he and his mother really tough. Cause she was uh, shaken by it. And so I said, you know, I would never, would never say everyone needs a moment like that in their lives, but insofar as it happens, it seems like you and others learn from it. And so obviously you would never, if you could change it, you, you probably would. But, and then he stopped me and he said, no, I, I don't know if I would change it. I mean, of course, in the moment I would, I wouldn't want my family member to die, but I, I recognize that it's shaping me who is who I am. And so, you know, that's what you get when you are, are have the resources and the purpose and, and connection in life, even if you're missing out on family members and you have a proxy for it in your community because you have the resources to grow. That's what you get, an attitude of resilience and those things sort of shaping you in a positive way. Well, yes, there's no regrets. Je ne regret rien. I mean, there's no point to regretting things. Um, everybody has negative events. You shouldn't be sitting there thinking, oh, my family, it's so traumatized. Look at that perfect family. I mean, if you wanted the Bidens are the perfect American family, you know, I was sitting there almost crying watching the four cousins talk and, the, and uh, Ashley, the daughter. And then, you know, I'm realizing, I don't know, do those girls see their father at all? Or when they see him, how uncomfortable are they? Or right. how are they dealing with their baby brother? Who They never, they never mentioned their baby brother once. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be their favorite topic. Everybody's dealing with something or right. not. And it's all relative. So I'm going to end with a classical reference. You know, uh, we've covered, you know, uh, Russian politics, American politics, American political family lives. Um, when Odysseus uh, or Ulysses was traveling home from the Battle of Troy, it took him a while to get home. And at one point, he stopped at an island for three years. Well, he stopped at one island for nine years with Calypso. Uh, Ulysses' wife was very, uh, I wouldn't say they had an open marriage, but Ulysses was got around. And then he spent three years with a goddess. He lived with a goddess for three years on another island. And at one point, the goddess says to him, she, she was ageless, and she could heal all of her wounds. And she said to yeah, Ulysses was full of scars from Troy. Um, he'd been cut up in every possible way. And she says to Ulysses, would you like me to heal all of your wounds? And Ulysses says, why would I do that? Then I wouldn't know who I was. Oh, uh, yeah. So we can do no greater than the wisdom of the Odyssey of Ulysses and of Homer. So maybe we can stop there for uh, this Sunday podcast. Brilliantly done. Brilliantly done.